Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, and welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Ben and Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center, Broadcast Center in downtown Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We have a great show for you today. Actually, our show is about a member of Silicon Beach, um, but as as the world has been talking about the the third battle between the Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers and whether the Golden State Warriors are one of the greatest teams of all time. Um, there's another story that's going around, and that's about the Los Angeles Clippers, who are in based in Silicon Beach. And, um, and just their curious affliction, and um, as summed up by a recent book that's come out by Mick Minus um, called The Curse. The Culver and Chaotic Chapter of the L.A. Clippers. And so we have Mick with us today to talk about the um, the rise and more often than not fall of the, the franchise since it moved to California, first in San Diego and now here in Los Angeles. So, Mick, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me, Bennett. Um, it, there are, correct me, what, 30 NFL, NBA teams? Teams, uh, I got the number right, but yeah, there's yeah. there's so many NBA teams to choose from, with many great stories behind them, um, from you know the Warriors who came from Philadelphia and had you know, Bill Walton, and then you know have now emerged again the Celtics, the Knicks, you know Lakers, you name it. Why write about the Clippers? Um, well, I originally I traveled over to California. In 2008, um, as part of, I do, I also coach basketball down here in Australia, and um, a team that I was coaching at the time, I took over to California and to Arizona, and we travelled around and played a bunch of colleges and junior colleges. And as part of that trip, we um, organised for some of the, because the bulk of the team was sort of young Australian guys who had never been to an NBA game. So we organized to go and check out a couple of games while we were there. And one of the games we went to was the 2008-2009 season opener for the Clippers, um, which was against the Lakers. And that was Baron Davis's debut with the Clippers. He just signed and he was obviously very high profile, you know, Los Angeles native coming home to play for the Clippers. And they looked to have assembled a nice roster and the Lakers were coming off the NBA Finals loss to the Celtics the year before. So we were all very excited, um, prepared for sort of what we thought was going to be a really exciting, great game. And 
I mean, we got to Staples and um, and the Clippers lost by, I think it was 38 or 40 points. And, I mean, we were all just astounded because, you know, you expect to see blowouts in the NBA, but not on opening night where you've got a fully healthy team and you've just signed a marquee player. Um, so that was sort of the launching point for my fascination with the Clippers. And when I got back to Australia, I, I did some... I sort of became, you know, moderately obsessed with them and started reading up and, and, and chasing down old articles, not, not not for the purpose of writing a book, just for my own interest. And um, I came to realise that the, the, it was a really fascinating franchise with just, you know, so many amazing stories that had happened um, over the years. And the fact that no one else had ever written a book about it sort of made me feel compelled to to undertake the task myself. You know, it's interesting. I remember, I remember that season well. Um, they won 19 games that year. They were 19 and 63 for winning 23% of those games. And I actually had partial season tickets that year. Very good seats, six row from behind the basket. And I couldn't get anyone to go. You know, the whole idea was take clients to the game and you know show off the good seats. And people would say, "Well, call me if you get the Lakers." It, it was just a, it was a tough season because Blake Griffith, you know, who had just been drafted, actually sat out this season with an injury, and um, so no one could you know, really see um, maybe the promise that was coming. But uh, it was a fairly bleak year for sure. So um, we we have the Clippers are, are just I guess there's this feast and this famine, but usually the feast is punctuated. By um, you know colossal um, disasters or colossal misfortune, and you know, I guess we jump forward to the current year. You have uh, a team that, despite um, having won sixty percent of its games for the sixth straight year, and being one of only four teams to win three hundred games the last you know five years or four years, um, they're the only team to do so that won 300 games in the last four years not to go to the finals. The only team to win 60% or more in um, six straight years in league history never to go to the conference finals. And they became the first team to blow a playoff lead five years in a row um, as they uh, blew a, I think it was a 2-1 lead against Utah and were eliminated in seven games in the first round once again. It, it's, it seems that this, this sense of great promise that just always seems elusive. Yeah, and and I mean, I guess the it, the the current sort of problems the Clippers are facing are not that unlike the problems that they've faced in the past. I mean, it, a common theme throughout the book is is um, is a sense of hope uh, at the start of seasons because I mean, it's easy to look back in hindsight and sort of. Um, look down on some of the Clippers' rosters. But, you know, the, throughout their history, there's been periods of time where they've assembled really good teams on paper. But as we know, you know, uh, NBA basketball is not uh, played out on on, spread, on a spreadsheet. You know, it's played out on the court. And, and one of the sort of common um, themes is the constant um, injury woes that the Clippers have had. And I think that that's the, the current um, roster, that's been the the with the exception of the Donald Sterling um, scandal, which I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss, I mean, the other really big um, roadblock that's been in their way is injuries. Um, and I think it's now we're at the point where we can confidently say that 
uh, the Clippers have um, two superstar players in in, Dion, uh, in Blake and, and Chris Paul that are both um, injury prone for whatever reason. But you, you know, if you look if you look back at the six seasons where they've made the playoffs, you know, nearly every one has been um, derailed by an injury to one or both of those players. But it, it'll, it, that that's true, and there's no there's no escaping that. But you know. The Warriors had Kevin Durant, who was out for part of the season. I mean, I have, granted, a lot of time, a lot of the the process of winning a championship is having the luck so that you know the right people are healthy at the right time, and particularly during the playoffs. And unfortunately, more often than not, that seems to be where the the, the Clippers injuries happen. As Blake got injured injured during the series um, this year in the first round, and I believe what Chris and Blake got injured during the same game in the first round last year. And and so, you know, it is, it is this incredible, the luck they've had, but it seems that other teams are able to overcome that. Yeah. Look, I don't know. I mean, if you look at the Warriors, you know, they're, they're a transcendent team and, you know, um, clearly regarded as one of the greatest teams of all time. But if you look at last season's finals for all of LeBron James's heroics, I mean, I think probably the storyline to take away from that was that when Steph Curry was less than 100% healthy, they weren't able to to win the championship. And that's despite winning 73 games in the regular season and, you know, being the darlings of the NBA that, right. you know, Steph suffered that injury and he came back and he was playing and maybe he was playing at 80% or 90% capacity. But, you know, a slightly uh, less healthy Steph Curry was enough to tilt the series in in the favour of, um, of of Cleveland, um, so I think the NBA is, you know, it's a in look in some ways there's not a lot of parity. You have these elite teams at the top, but if you take the Western Conference from second seed down to the seventh or eighth seed, it's probably a lot, not a lot between those teams, and you know you can't afford. I mean, those injuries in the regular season. They've cost the Clippers um, playoff seeding, and and mm. sometimes they've forced them into harder matchups or, you know, loss of home court advantage. Um, but I mean, you know, those injuries in the playoffs, I mean, it's it's really really hard to to come back from them. And 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 you know, I think if Blake's healthy, they they beat Utah this time around. I mean, they probably still lose to not probably they would have lost to Golden State in the second round, but. <laughs> You think? Um, you know, if Blake and Chris were inju- healthy during the season, perhaps they perhaps they get a second or third seed, and perhaps they make it to the Western Conference Finals. And then the the narrative, the the discussion now is very different. It's it's right. the discussion then is are the Clippers on the verge of being the next team to to challenge for a championship? I mean, the difference between getting knocked out in the first round and making the conference finals is is not all that much, but. It's it's undoubt. I mean, injuries have played a, a huge role in in the fate of this current squad. So um, our story doesn't begin in the, um, the with the warm breezes of Southern California. Our story actually begins in uh, the snows of Buffalo in 1970, when the Clippers came. Excuse me, the Buffalo Braves came into the league along with the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Portland Trailblazers. And um, tell us about that, uh, that early Buffalo franchise. Yeah, I mean, what, 
in the first draft of the book, there was actually a lot more um, content on the Buffalo Braves. They're a fascinating um, franchise. They were only in Buffalo for eight seasons. Uh, they, they very much reminded me of the Oklahoma City Thunder. I mean, I guess at the time that I was researching the book, that was you know the time that the Thunder was sort of emerging um, as a as a um, you know title contender. Right. Um, and and Buffalo had assembled a really nice young roster and um, you know small had, market team. Yeah. Yeah. Strong strong um, strong crowd. Um, Good fan draft base. Picks. Yeah. Even even like similar looking uniforms, um, but um, you know, as 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 has happened throughout the history of professional sports, I mean, there's um, change of ownership and um, a, a desire it seemed from um, the owner to to um, leave Buffalo, um, and and so that coincided with Irv Levin who was the owner of the Boston Celtics at the time. And he was also a um, he also worked as a as a Hollywood producer, so he was sort of splitting his time between you know living in uh, living in New England and also living on the West Coast for his work. And um, Irv Levin had success with the Celtics. You know he was the owner during the '76 season when they won the NBA championship. But I mean his his relationship with the sporting public of Boston soured very quickly. And by the end of the 78 season, he was despised. Um, I mean, I tell the story in the book that when John Havlicek had his retirement ceremony, uh, Irv Levin went out um, to present um, John Havlicek with a gift at halftime, and he was just showered with booze, um, uh, you know, really sort of um, embarrassing scene. And so Irv Levin had decided he wanted to get out of Boston. He still wanted to remain an NBA owner, but... He was exploring the the idea of moving the Celtics away from Boston. Um, I mean, which seems like an absurd notion now. Yeah, exactly. In yeah. <laughs> um, and and so the NBA sort of came up with a novel solution. They the behind the scenes there was some negotiation negotiating that took place, and they sort of thought, well, we could fix two problems at once here. I mean, uh, if, if we do a, a franchise swap between the owners of Buffalo and the owners of the Celtics. I mean, the Buffalo owners all of a sudden now they get to own the Boston Celtics. I mean, they get a, a, a successful the, the uh, marquee franchise. franchise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great deal for them. And Irv Levin can take can can um, uh, become the owner of Buffalo, and we could they can he can move Buffalo wherever he wants because by that time, um, you know, the the Buffalo team had been run down so much that. You know the crowd numbers had just plummeted, and there was a there was a clause in the lease they had with the um, uh, stadium at Buffalo where if the crowd numbers fell below a certain point, uh, they could break the lease and move anywhere they want. So um, John White Brown, who was um, the owner of Buffalo at the time, he was already exploring. Uh, he was taking offers from around the country. He was flying around America to meet with, you know, um, uh, you know, like stadiums from around America to see where he could move his team to. And one of the cities that was being considered was San Diego. So, you know, I, I, it had never happened before in NBA history, and I, I, I feel fairly safe in saying it will never happen again. But uh, the two owners made a trade, not of players or draft, or draft picks, they made a, a, a trade of their actual franchises. 
Although, first of all, I'll give you credit. In the, the book, you talk about uh, how what John Y. Brown did in Buffalo was uh, the equivalent or even worse than the uh, fictional, um, you know, famous baseball movie, movie uh, Major League, where the owner purposely wants to drive the team into the ground so she can move it. And um, except in Major League, the team rallied and came back. I mean, Buffalo was a good team. They made the playoffs three years in a row. They had the league MVP with John Mac- um, McAdoo. And um, even the rookie of the year with Ernie DiBagorio uh, from you know, my hometown. And, and so, um, you know, this was a, a, t- a franchise that showed promise very early in its, in its existence. And then Mac- um, Brown ships away McAdoo. He actually had the rights, and I, mean, I guess he may have played a game or two for Buffalo, but he shipped away Moses Malone. I mean, the, that's just phenomenal. And But what's most interesting, and I guess kind of prophetic of what would be the, the case for um, years to come, um, when they did the swap, they did exchange a couple of players, and the, um, the Celtics offered the Clippers one of their two first round draft picks for that year and the choice was Larry Bird who was you know Red Orbach famously drafted as a junior and would not be able to play until the following year and Freeman Williams you know the high scoring guard and the Clippers wanted someone who would be able to play right away and they chose Freeman Williams yeah and uh, and that's a fascinating what if isn't it Bennett I mean imagine if if they if the Clippers had have acquired Larry Bird instead of the Celtics, I mean, the whole landscape of the NBA would have changed entirely. Yeah, and so yeah, although you know he would be he later did play with Walton, but yeah, it is it's just a fascinating scenario. So they moved to San Diego, and this wasn't the first attempt at basketball in San Diego. The uh, the San Diego Rockets, um, the Houston Rockets began there as the San Diego Rockets. And actually, very few people know that. So when the Rockets left San Diego, um, the San Francisco Warriors changed their name to Golden State with an intention to play a few games a year in San Diego to kind of, you know, create a bigger um, kind of pan-California presence. And they, they only did it for a year or two, and they kind of abandoned the notion, although the Golden State name remains. But um, so basketball hadn't been usually successful in San Diego. No, and, and and the other team, I mean, the ABA had a a franchise in in San Diego as well. The the they were called the Sales and the Conquistadors, um, and they had also um, failed miserably. Oh, actually, um, yeah, and the, the, give the the cues were they signed Wilt Chamberlain, but he was barred by contract from playing with them, so he could only coach. And they played in like a twenty three hundred seat arena in Chula Vista. I mean, it was uh, it was a catastrophe from the start, and uh, the um, they they sought um, some ballot proposal to get a new get a new arena, and um, Wilt didn't even campaign for it, and, and so and it failed. And I forget whether the franchise has faltered or moved elsewhere, but um, we're gonna take a short break. But when we come back, um, we'll have more about the curse. The colorful and chaotic history of the LA Clippers after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report only on cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? 
Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjord, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contests and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back, and we're talking to Mick Minus. He is the author of The Curse on the Colorful and Chaotic History of the L.A. Clippers. And, Mick, we were just talking about the move to San Diego and the fact that San Diego had not been uh, a very hospitable basketball town. Um but the Clippers actually were um, started off fairly well in San Diego. They were at a a winning season right off the bat. Yeah, and that I mean that first Clippers team was one of my favorite teams to sort of research. I, I got to speak to nearly every member of the roster that was um, that's still alive, and spoke to you know head coach and assistant coach and trainer and. And what the the really common theme that came through from speaking with those people was that the the, the sense of sort of um, team camaraderie, the sort of family uh, atmosphere that had been created, which is very unique in professional sports, and those guys really enjoyed playing um, with each other, and they really enjoyed sort of being out there in a new frontier and playing in San Diego and trying to win over um, the, the market and. And, and they had a lot of success. I mean, they started off slowly, but after the All-Star break, they were one of the NBA's best teams and they narrowly missed the playoffs, um, but had a really good young roster and appeared to be going places. And uh, they had one of, I think, uh, one of the best names in, in basketball with uh, the former 76ers guard, World Be Free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess, you know, Meta, Meta, I guess Meta Peace... Uh, I may have may have one up to him years later, but uh, at the time that that was one of the best names in basketball, and he was their high scorer, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, he was um, both seasons he played with the Clippers, he finished second in the league in scoring. Um, and I, I got to interview World, and, and he was telling me stories about when he did change his name from Lloyd Free to World Be Free, how um, opposing opposing uh, uh, fans and um, opposition players and court announcers would sort of deliberately still call him Lloyd because that really annoyed him, uh, and he he wanted to be now known as World and. Um, he told me a story that when he used to play against Norm Nixon, Norm Nixon would 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 call him Lloyd all game, and and World thought at first that that it was sort of an innocent mistake that that Norm didn't realise his name his name had changed, and then he sort of came to realise no, this is sort of gamesmanship, and and Norm Nixon was trying to throw him off his game, and um, yeah, he was a real character. He was sort of the first superstar for the Clippers and he was a, a great person to have in that role because he was not only a, a big scorer, he was also a big personality and someone who could sort of draw the community into the world of professional basketball. And so you have Irv Levin who was not unwilling to, to pay for top players and very quickly upon entering San Diego, he reached for one of the best names in basketball and a hometown hero in Bill Walton. Yeah. Um, how to tell us about how that happened? Well, it's no no doubt that it's a, it was a risky move. Um, I mean, Bill Walton had had at that point in his career he, he had established two very clear facts. One was that he was one of the most talented players. I mean, in the NBA at the time, definitely, but but you know, perhaps one of the most talented players to ever play in the NBA. I mean, he was a legitimate center in terms of his size, but he possessed a, a ability to pass the ball that was unlike anything had, that had been seen from a post player. Um, you know, to this day, I still think he's the best outlet passer uh, to play in the NBA, and and that was something that um, Gene Shu, the coach at the time you know, uh, sort of put a high priority on because the Clippers played a very up-tempo style game. And um, so so Bill was a unique talent. But the other the other um, thing about Bill Walton that was very clearly established was that he had a long and extensive injury history. And if you were signing Bill Walton, um, you didn't know what you were getting. You know, you might get healthy Bill Walton that, that can lead your team to the promised land you might get Bill Walton that's not able to play very many games. So there's no doubt that when the Clippers signed him, it was a roll of the dice. Um, the 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 approach to the Clippers actually came from Bill Walton's um, Bill Walton's management. It didn't come from the Clippers. Uh, Gene Shu said he was sitting in his office one day and he received a phone call from Bill Walton's agent at the time saying, how would you feel about having Bill come and play in San Diego? Uh, at the time, Bill Walton was involved in this uh, very bitter dispute with Portland's management. He had won the a championship there, and then he'd, the following season, he'd suffered a, a very serious injury. And and that right before the playoffs, or during the playoffs, I think, yeah. Well, he suffered it before the playoffs, and then to hear Bill tell the story, he felt um, a great amount of pressure to come back and to try and play in that year's playoffs. Um which he did, which made the injury worse, which resulted in him having to sit out the the, the entire next season. So when when Bill Walton's um, agent was negotiating with the Clippers, uh, I mean, this was someone who was not playing at the time. He was inactive. 
Um, and there was a lawsuit going on between Bill Walton and the team doctor and the management of the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, so it was definitely a, a, a tricky situation. Um, and Gene Shu was was really interested. I uh, spoke to Earth Levin and found out if they would be prepared to pay the money to have Bill Walton. And he was on a plane the next day and he met Bill in, in some rural area and, uh, you know, had a chat with him and, and Bill assured him that, you know, everything was fine and he was healthy and ready to go. And Clippers ultimately decided to... Um, take the plunge and, and and sign him to a very lucrative seven-year deal. And, and and at that point in time, the the fortunes of the Clippers sort of were turned over to one man, which was Bill Walton. And things changed dramatically. Well, first of all, they had to give up a number of players. Um, yeah. Even though he was a free agent, they were, back then you were required to give up players in, in compensation. Um, yeah, which which was really fascinating when I was doing when I was uh, because as you say, the, the free agency didn't mean you could just sign someone. You had to compensate the team, and the way the rules worked were you either could negotiate with the two teams could negotiate and come to an agreement about what was fair compensation, or um, if in, in the case where that was unable to happen, the league commissioner made a determination, and and Portland just put in this ludicrous request of. They wanted five first-round draft picks, and they wanted a huge sum of money, and they wanted, you know, three members of the Clippers starting five. And um, their, their requests seemed to have no, um, no sort of um, connection with the reality that Bill Walton was uh, a player with huge injury troubles, and there was an inherent risk in the Clippers signing him. But even when the commissioner, so ultimately the commissioner had to um, rule on it, and the Clippers ended up losing you know, three very important players in Kermit Washington and um, Randy Smith and Kevin Coonert and draft picks. And and and, and so it really had a, a big effect on the franchise. And and so let's talk about Walton's first three seasons with the Clippers. Well, the, the first game showed a lot of promise. There, were, there was a, wasn't there a big exhibition game against the Lakers and Kareem? And you know there already had been this rivalry with Walton and Kareem because you know, the Blazers were were in the same division as the Lakers, and you know they beat the Lakers to go to the finals. Um, tell, tell me about that 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 opening game. Yeah, so they played an exhibition, and and it was actually played down in Anaheim, um, and um, and it was Magic Johnson's rookie season, and 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 so it was these two promising teams from Southern California and you had the Clippers with, you know, well be free and Bill Walton and you had the Lakers with magic and Kareem. And, and whilst it was only an exhibition, uh, there was clearly sort of some bragging rights up for grabs as a strong, as you say, been a strong, strong rivalry between um, Bill Walton and, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and they went head to head and, and the Clippers won. And so within the, within the Clippers camp, there was this, uh, great sense of optimism after that game, and the very next day, Bill Walton was having trouble walking, um, and he ended up having to sit out the next exhibition game. And that was sort of the maybe the first sign of the the problems that were to come. And he would go on to play only fourteen games that entire season, none the next season, none the season after. So he would not start a game as a Clipper until nineteen eighty three. And by then, he's now 30 years old. 
you know, maybe not necessarily the, the same Bill Walton who won the MVP. And even then, he only played 33 games. And but then he's got a little better the next season and played 55 games, um, scoring. Let's see, about, about only really contributing 12 or 14 points a game. Um, not the dominant Walton we expected to see, although in the rebounds were respectable, just under 10. Yeah, I mean, he, he um, and by that stage of his career, I mean, he had essentially become a role player. Um, so the Clippers were paying for a, a, a superstar and, and, and what they got was a part-time role player. And I mean, and I think that Bill himself came to that realisation that he was not going to be able to lead a team to a championship, which was which was part of the reason why he decided he wanted to leave San Diego, uh, and and he you know he decided he wanted to either play for the Lakers or the Celtics because he wanted to have one last run at a championship, and he and he was aware that he wasn't going to be able to be a player that could build the championship team around, uh, as had been the case in Portland. That by that stage of his career, uh, with his physical ailments, that the best he could hope for was to be a contributing member on a championship team rather than the the focal point. Yeah, I mean the Clippers they're um over the next few years their the wins just dwindled and they went from being a winning team to in 82 they only won 20% and 83 30%. I mean this was a team that was just doing terrible and um but before Walton could leave San Diego the Clippers did. Yeah, how'd that um, happen? So we, 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 in between that time, there's a change of ownership. Irv Levin decided he wanted out due to a number of factors. Um, and they explored selling the team to a number of people, one of whom was Phil Knight, um, the, you know, head of Nike. Um, and there was a, they came fairly close, Phil Knight came fairly close to buying the Clippers, which again, you know, fascinating um, what, what if, if Phil yeah. Knight had bought the team instead of Donald Sterling. Um Eventually, they settled on selling it to Donald Sterling. Um, and, I mean, you know, I, I can't say one way or another what, what his intentions were. But, uh, I mean, I think, it's, again, if we bring it to a modern-day equivalent, you know, when Clay Bennett bought the um, Seattle Supersonics, I don't think anybody really felt that he had any intention of keeping the team in Seattle. Right. I mean, he, he, he can make a legal argument that that there was no there was no um, bad intentions on his part, and he did everything he could to try to keep the team there. But I mean, I think if you look at his actions, it's fairly transparent that they had every intention of of um, moving the team. We've um, actually had the um, the the filmmakers of Sonicscape on our show years ago um and uh yeah it's just what what happened there is just a, a travesty but um i'm sorry I have, to, I have to go back and listen to it if it's if it's in the there's actually I, I love, yeah there's I two there's, there's two there's one espn bought it and cleaned it up and so the first one that's out there on the web i don't think they necessarily have all the rights to everything that's in in the footage and so i think espn kind of cut it down and also made sure that they had the rights to everything. So the ESPN actually ran it the year the um, the Thunder made it to the NBA Finals. You know what would have been the Seattle Sonics, um, and so they ran it at that time. Yeah, no, I mean, no, I've seen. I mean, sorry, Ben, I've seen, I've seen Sonic Skate. I mean, I thought it was fantastic. I've oh, seen okay. the, um, 
I've seen the the pipe the bootleg version. I haven't seen the yeah. ESPN. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it's a fantastic film. It's it's really well made and really tells the story of um, uh, you know the franchise and and how sort of and, and this is I mean I think this connects back to what we're talking about with Donald Sterling moving from San Diego. I mean, there's a real problem with professional sports franchises. Uh, they they sort of trade on the fact that fans have feel a strong allegiance to their team and um you know they're happy to stay in a town and sell people merchandise and make these connections with the local community but then when it suits them they're, they're able to just pack up ship and, and leave town with no regard whatsoever for what they're leaving behind and i mean in some in some aspects they act as if they're public institutions but then in other times they 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 act as if they're completely uh, private corporate interests that they have entitlement to sort of move, be completely profit seeking and move around wherever they want. And I think, I think you, you have to sort of be one or the other. I mean, I don't think, you don't think it's legitimate to sort of, um, you know, plead for public funds to build a stadium, get the public funds to build the stadium. And then, and then, you know, five, eight years later, get a better offer from somewhere else and then pack right. up and leave, you know? Hang on, um, sorry. Yeah, I'm out of here. Yeah, exactly. And that, that is, I think, a, a frustration of a, a lot of cities these days. And, and some are arguing whether it's, wor it's worth the cost. And so you have Donald Sterling. And it's interesting, uh, you know, Donald Sterling made his money in real estate. And in Los Angeles, his reputation is mixed because to a certain extent, Donald Sterling was a slumlord. And I, I worked at a law firm that, you know, he took a number of pro bono cases, you know, involving his properties. And, and so um, aside from the the racial element, because he also was, I guess he had been, um, I, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he may have had some history also with housing discrimination, you know, reflecting his, his racial views. But uh, he was also a slumlord as an NBA owner because he figured out that he could make a lot of money even if the Clippers absolutely sucked. And for a good part of the first you know, first 10 years of his tenure, they they did in spades. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and it was like, I mean, as an owner, do you, he, I guess, I guess he, the common perception about Don Sterling as an NBA owner is that he's a failure. Um, but I guess before you can assess the the success or failure of any sort of entity, you have to sort of establish an agreed upon criteria. And I, I think that Donald Sterling was playing a different game than all the other owners. I think that the uh, the general NBA owner has by, has a tremendous amount of financial success in some other area of their life. And they decide I'm going to use some of this money to buy this team. And when I buy this team, that's going to be more like a play thing for me where I don't mind if I lose some money, but what I want in the long term is is the success. I want to chase a championship. I want the fun of being involved in a successful team. I don't think, and I think Donald Sterling's actions indicate that he he saw it completely differently. He saw the Clippers exactly the same as he saw an apartment building he purchased in Beverly Hills where he expected right. that he expected them to turn a profit and that was that was first priority second priority third priority and I mean putting a winning team on the court would be something he was interested in but it was it was far from the be-all and end-all from Donald Sterling's perspective and so he bought the Clippers for 12.5 million 
in the 80s. So, I mean, adjust that for inflation, you know, maybe that gets you to the mid 50s or something. I could be wrong. But he sold it for $2 billion. Yeah. And, 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 and also, how, ben, how is that not successful? Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, and also, uh, he, when he bought the team, he bought the team. He didn't actually pay like uh, 12.5 million in, in cash. He, 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 he paid, I think, a million and he agreed to take on 11 and a half million in, in debts that Irv Levin had at the time. And then, and then, so, so some of those debts were meet, meeting salary obligations, um, from previous players, and then and then Donald Sterling, when and then there was times where he was saying, "Well, why am I paying? Why am I paying this salary to this Celtics player who's not on the roster now?" And and it was like, "Well, this is this is part of what you agreed when you when you purchased the team, you know." So he bought it with very little cash outlay relative to what the what the asset was, um, and then he sort of disputed and, and fought about trying to actually meet the financial obligations that went with that so i mean who, who did he try to stiff maxwell or walton no no no. I, I believe so i believe that when paul silas was coaching the clippers oh yeah that he, that he also was was uh, so i don't know that all the ins and outs but i agree i believe that part of it was that he was paying some of the because i mean that time a big thing in the nba was you would give be given a salary that would be announced as oh such and such is getting paid six hundred thousand right. dollars, but a lot of it was deferred compensation. Um, so the, the very little upfront money, or you know, not very little. I mean, there was a lot of upfront money, but a lot of the salary was actually paid in deferred compensation. So Silas, who was on the Celtics in the mid seventies, um, because of the, the franchise swap. Uh, the Clippers had to meet some of the salary obligations of those those previous Celtics players. Um, so it, 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 it's unclear exactly how much Sterling paid for the team, but I, I, I from people I've spoken to, I'd put the figure at probably closer to a million dollars in cash, and then there was a lot of assuming liabilities as well. And like you said, he sold the team for $2 billion, and in, in, and in between, those 30-odd years when he owned the team, I mean, they 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 pulled in money not so much from the from their gate, but they pulled in money from from um, you know the, the TV money of the NBA, and 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 during that time they were paying very very little out in terms of player salary. Right. So we're gonna take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about this Donald Sterling era after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report only on Cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Cranberry Radio is your new destination for education, entertainment, and engagement. Get educated and entertained by our panel of on-air experts and peers and engage with us anytime by following us on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, and LinkedIn so you can reach us before and after every program located on our new social shareable live streaming player. Access the new Cranberry Radio live stream player at our website, cranberry.fm. Looking for a white label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. 
Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. How much are your best ideas worth? PriorThings.com gives you an added layer of protection for all of your intellectual property, ideas, and creative things. New business idea, pitch deck, PowerPoint presentation, song lyrics, source code, killer blog posts, we help you protect it all. How do we do it? We use the same technology platform that secures transactions for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Learn more at PriorThings.com. Check out exclusive listener pricing for Cranberry Radio listeners by going to bit.ly slash Founders Circle. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back and we're talking to Mick Minus and uh, author of The Curse, The Colorful and Chaotic History of the L.A. Clippers. And we just got to the Donald Sterling era. And let me tell you a, a story that I think may have summed up the early years of the Donald Sterling era as owner of the Clippers. Um, you know, currently the Clippers and they share Staples Center with the Los Angeles Lakers and um you know, and they actually sell out. It's a beautiful arena. But for a number of years, they played in the dingy L.A. sports arena, which, you know, had been home to the Lakers like 30 years ago. I mean, it was used in the 1980 Olympics. And, you know, this was an old facility. It had about 12,000 people. And the Clippers were trying to recruit, uh, you know, downtown businesses to go. So my firm got a ticket, got VIP tickets. And, you know, there were decent seats, you know, five or six rows up. And more towards, um, you know, the foul line. So my friend and I wanted to move closer to center court. And we moved. And at the time, there was like 1,000 or 2,000 people in the arena. And we moved closer to center court. And the usher comes over to us. And he says, can I see your tickets? And this is my first Clipper game. And you know, I'm, I'm mouthed off. And I said, come on, man. It's the Clippers. And the usher said, good point. And, and I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, my God. And, and, um, and so at that point, you know, I was like, listen, he said, you'll move if, if someone comes. I said, don't worry. And as it was, you know, if, if, in fairness to me, mouth and off, yeah, I did have to move over one seat. But <laughs> <laughs> that was how demoralized the place was. I mean, the, that night, Glenn Lice, Rice lit up the place for, you know, he was playing for Miami, lit them up for 49 points. And so um, – we only have about 10 minutes left, so I want to just kind of zip through the Sterling era. You know, they just struggled, and, and some of the struggles weren't necessarily all Sterling's fault. I mean, he was, he didn't like to pay the big salaries, but they, you know, there was a period, you know, he got Larry Brown as a coach, and they started they started winning. Um, why did that winning not continue? Well, I think that is a case of... Um Sterling to be, being to blame. Um, I mean, ultimately they they had established a good team that year, um, you know, and and they made the playoffs and they had a good roster. Had Larry Brown coaching, and at the end of that season, um, it became Charles Smith was the first player to leave, and he basically demanded a trade. He and and that was because the Clippers wouldn't meet um, his salary demands. 
Um, so and and then and that led to sort of the breakup of the team because same thing happened with Danny Manning, same thing happened with Ron Harper. Now, I mean, Sterling's argument would be uh, that he wasn't going to overpay sort of mid-level players, um, and you can make a case that maybe those three guys were, were none of them were superstars. But the fact remains that they had a really nice team that appeared to be heading going places. Um, you know, they'd won forty-five games in the '92 season, um, and you know, if they had kept that team together, you know, they could have grown and, and evolved and, and potentially become one of the Western Conference powerhouses. But the the unwillingness to to pay sort of the market rate for those players led led to them leaving, and then the the mid '90s became much the same as the mid '80s for the Clippers. And so then, you know, they, you know, granted, they had a whole slew. If you look at the Clippers draft history, it's a whole slew of, you know, of you got to be kidding me type of selections. But then, you know, they get, um, they get Elton Brand, and they trade for Sam Cassell, or they sign Sam Cassell, and they have Sean Livingston, you know, straight out of high school, and they, they have they become a promising team under Mike Dunleavy, and you know. But for uh, you know a misplayed uh, overtime, you know they may have made it to the conference finals and actually had they be had they actually beaten the Suns in that seven game series um, back in was it two thousand six I believe, and and then tragedy strikes again. Sean Livingston has I mean I didn't I didn't see it live I heard it live on the radio. And it was disgusting on the radio. I mean, you could hear him screaming. He had an injury that um, was so bad that doctors, it was revealed a year later, doctors considered amputation as a remedy. And, you know, now he's a key part of the Warriors, uh, you know, championship squad and, you know, hats off to him. And then you have Elton Brand, you know, one of the premier power forwards in the league. And he blows his tendon playing pickup ball against his teammate. And, and so... Once again, now they're, you know, what was a promising team, they're back to, you know, the, the land of suck. <laughs> and, and and so then we get the Blake Griffin era, and it seems like there's pressure on Sterling to, now that they're in the Staples Center, to finally field a competitive team. And so we have the, the Chris Paul transaction, they get DeAndre Jordan, they get some, you know, some decent players. Um, and then Sterling opens his mouth. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know, Bennett, you probably would be interested to know what your perspective on it is. I mean, it, at the end of the day, the, the the demise of Donald Sterling had nothing to do with what happened on the basketball court and, and and uh, you know, everything to do with sort of um, his private life. You know, I mean, it was a ultimately the thing that brought him down was a was a private conversation that was recorded seemingly without his knowledge. Um Oh, you, I would state it differently. I would say Donald Sterling was allowed to continue in the league because no one cared about the Clippers. What struck me when the whole thing that came out, and I forget the woman's name, the whole thing that came out and you know, his racial comments and comments about magic was that people said, oh, yeah, we've known he's been saying this for years, but we never reported it because it was the Clippers. I mean, yeah. had... Had Phil Jackson said that, had, you know, um, you know, Pat Riley said that, that would have been all over the papers. But who cares? It's just the Clippers. So what? They suck. Why, why, am, I, why am I going to risk infuriating an owner by publishing a story that, of a team no one cares about? 
And I think that was the the more that's the that's the real story was that he was allowed to continue in the league because no one cared. But do you think I I always think that the NBA deep down had a desire to to get rid of him? If that I mean if they had if they had their time again, they probably would never have had him come in as an owner. Not probably, sure. they definitely would have never. But I think one of the issues was that Don Sterling was a lawyer as well, and he knew that and very um, litigious. Yeah, and he knew that settling these cases, so settling the sexual harassment cases and settling the the you know claims the racial, of sort of yeah, yeah racial uh, and and the discrimination in in housing and where, every time those things were settled, they were settled with no admission of guilt. You know, they were settled before right. they they went through a sort of uh, legal process, and they were settled with huge payouts. So for, for all intents and purposes, I mean, if you settle a dispute with someone and you agree to pay them $5 million, I mean, well, you could draw your own conclusion as to whether the person that's paying the $5 million is guilty or not. But it would seem fairly obvious that there's some some issue there. But legally, the NBA knew that if they tried to take any action against Nolan Sterling, he wasn't going to go quietly. And, and what happened in 2014 was evidence of that, you know, that the the players union really pushed hard behind the scenes saying you need to do something you need to get this guy out of here he can't be here at the start of the next season well i think and, the players the players were, we only have a few minutes left so the players weren't wouldn't want didn't want to play for a racist who was someone who was openly racist and i think that's what it came down to we only have two minutes left and obviously the big question is you have the, the clippers have just got jerry west you know you manufactured the, the laker dynasty to an extent Help was a pivotal role in making Oklahoma a contender, making definitely helped the Golden State become the championship team. Will Jerry West make the the Clippers take get the Clippers in the finals? I think that Jerry West is a great signing, and now we need to see if Doc Rivers will sort of like allow Jerry West because Jerry West ultimately he's a consultant. He's not going to have any decision making power. Right. So it, it'll depend on the internal structures of the team as to whether. He's allowed to have the influence that he should have. It's a great signing, and it now depends on that sort of internal working and, and how Obama sets it up with who who says what and who has a voice in these in these sort of player transaction areas. Very very briefly, we only have a few seconds left. Are you a fan? Who is your favorite NBA team? Yeah, look, I, I am a fan of the Clippers, and and I I um. And after spending like these five years working on the book, it's impossible not to root for them. So, you know, every every year it comes around, I, I open up the season with this great amount of hope that this will be the year that they they climb the mountain. And like all Clippers fans, you know, you live with that sort of feeling of of, of perpetual disappointment. But I, I feel optimistic that that better days are ahead. And and so, the, are, are, but are the Clippers your favorite team? Or you, are you? Yeah, 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 definitely. And so um, the book the book came out at um, just before the start of last year. Um, any other any, where where can people find the book and um, and any appearances you want to promote? Yeah, so my website is um, clippercurse.com. Um, it's got lots of information on there about the book, and it's got a blog, uh, and and there's links there to be able to purchase it. You can also purchase it from Amazon. So if you just go to Amazon and you search um, under. Uh, Clippers books or whatever you'll be able to find it. And is is, is there any promo code for the book any anywhere? Um, I can set up. I can set up a promo code for your listeners. I don't know if you have show notes that go with the. Yeah, they will. 
They will, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can set up a promo code for the listeners, and we can we can put that up on the on your the site. Show notes. Okay, and as usual, show notes are at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Um, Mick Minus, I want to thank you very much, and uh, it's definitely uh, uh, it's been a fascinating your seatbelt has been a bumpy ride. And I guess I I love the intro by um, Coach Lyman, who also coached my alma mater many years ago. Is that um, it? His sub he believes his subtitle is "You can't make this stuff up." So the, the, the incredible, uh, sad but true story of the Los Angeles Clippers uh, vividly portrayed in the, the book, The Curse. Mick, thank you for joining us. I'm calling early from Australia, and uh, it's been a pleasure having you. Thanks for having me on, Bennett. Cheers. And that's all we have for today. Um, and, of course, we'll have to wait and see if the Clippers re-sign their two-star players. Um, Chris Paul and Blake Griffiths, and um, we'll be seeing what happens in the next NBA season. But you can join, be sure, next week we will be here um, with another edition of Cyberlong Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly. Have a great week. opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.